You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. Today is August 17th, Thursday. A lot of interesting things going on, per usual. This is Lanyap Podcast. I'm here with uh, my brother Doug. We talked last week about John Hussman, um, who's been running a, a, a very unsuccessful mutual fund for the last 20 years, except for one single year in 2008, when he did pretty well during the global financial crisis. We had another individual who also had his uh, moment in the sun, basically, in that same time period, and then subsequently has done, uh, I think he's done okay, but not as bad as Hussman, but certainly not as good as just doing something more passive or whatever. That individual specifically is Michael Burry, who was famously portrayed by um, Christian Bale in The Big Short. Essentially a guy who um, was a little oddball type guy and uh, ended up uh, correctly predicting the subprime mortgage crisis and made like a billion dollars or over a billion dollars in 2008 when everything else went went to hell. So this particular week, we received a text message from our older brother actually and said, did you see that Michael Burry is shorting the stock market again? And Doug and I responded to him that that's, this is the same thing that we've been seeing multiple times. And what I did was I ended up going through and looking up all of Michael Burry's predictions about the stock market crashing and in very similar um in very similar fashion to what Doug did last week with, with John Hussman, I'm going to go through the chronology of Michael Burry, the uh, famous big short investor um, calling for market crashes over the last 10 years or so. So this is December, of, and, and keep in mind, this is the S&P 500 at, when I'm starting this conversation is 1780, and today it is 4,500 or so. It's been kind of a crummy week. So this is December 2015, SP 500 at this point in time is 2000. So like about half of what it is right now, it says crash is coming in a few months. Number two, May 2017, global financial meltdown coming. The SP 500 at that point in time of May of 2017 was 2200, global financial meltdown coming. September 2019, uh, the SP 500 is at 2900. Bubble in index ETFs, and then he, and then in March of 2020, after all of the COVID stuff, he reveals a massive bearish bet, and then he calls for a uh, a market bubble in February of 2021. He was kind of right about that. Yeah, he's kind of right about that, but he was a year late, and then he says sell in January of 2023, as we've talked about previously on this podcast, and then of course he said he was wrong to sell, (laughs) say sell. And then here we are again. And so, but anyway, it's just another one of these same dudes who um, is basically trying to prey on people's fear. And he's got some credibility because he was right once. And um, well, I think the the uh, disappointing factor here, and, and I think Burry has been a successful investor. Uh, he runs his own money at this point, but uh, the news media. And then by virtue of listening to the media individuals uh, make portfolio decisions based upon one person's uh, views of the market running their own money, they don't really consider that individuals have long-term 
financial goals, rate of return requirements, um, are not uh, people that are going to be jumping in and out of the market or shorting and going long the market. And so uh, I think this is all just good headline grabber type information. I don't think what the media tries to do is then push it down to people to make portfolio level decisions on. And I think that that's uh, that's a, an exercise in futility as as you've outlined over the same time frame that the S&P 500 is more than doubled. It's up, uh, what, two and a half times. And there's been seven or eight calls for an, an impending crash. The same, another person that does this is that guy, uh, Robert, um, what's his last rich, name? Rich dad, poor dad, cute. Yeah, rich, yeah, yeah, yeah. He does the same exact thing. Um, and, and the problem is that it's, uh, it's preying on people's fears. Uh, it's, it's calling people naive for not focusing on what's going on in the world. I mean, we're going to go through today some of the major risks in the market, but why do we call this the wall of worry? It's because um, there's never a situation in markets in which uh, you're, uh, there's an all-clear signal and markets just continue to march higher. I mean, this year, to think about what's happened this year, we had major bank failures, two of the biggest bank failures in history in the markets. The markets are up. So uh, this is just another... Uh, one of those uh, fear-mongering situations in which uh, people who the sort of the weak hands fold and um, you know people that have long-term plans uh, that are disciplined sort of end up on top in these types. Here's of situations. what they don't tell you, Doug. That they say they don't. There's not a headline that says S and P 500 historically up three out of every four years on average. Yeah, yeah. Well, there'd be nothing else to report. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and so there, there are so just by virtue of us being optimists that we sort of take a historical mindset that we're long term focused. um, There is a there's an insinuation there that there's uh, a blind side that we're not and blind sides in the news this week by the way, but (laughs) (laughs) but uh, there's a blind side to what's going on in the world and that's not the case at all i think it's prudent to think about risks that are out there but i don't think you should make major portfolio decisions based upon those risks um you know first we're going to talk about is uh and maybe we just jump into this is what's going on in china and uh and and seemingly major economic contraction that's going on there so greg do you want to talk about the the chinese market for for a second yeah, like when we when I first got in the business, when we, when you first got in the business, a major risk that was the the sort of known risks that we, there's always these there's always ri- known risks and unknown risks and an unknown risk was like the global pandemic, for example, that caught everybody by surprise. But one of the known risks when I got into the business was the U.S. and the Ch- and China decoupling, meaning that the economies of those two particular nations were so intertwined that if there was some sort of conflict or anything like that. Then it would be a major market shock. That is actually over the last four years has really become a reality. I mean, since the the um, the tariffs that Trump announced in 2019, the uh, U.S. and China's trade has gone from basically like we they've been they were our number one trade partner. That now they're our number three. Our uh, friends and neighbors to the south in Mexico are now number one. But it's really just a. It's a, the Wall Street Journal wrote a really interesting article about this sort of divergence in the variety of different goods and products that we've gotten from China, and over the last four or five years since those t- 
tariffs went into play. And that's really accelerating, especially if you consider the um, the level of intertwinement that the two nations had before. And now a lot of that's been shifted south of the border. Um, so really interesting t- times. The, the Chinese nation just looks like it's doing horribly right now in general. And I, it, I'm sure a lot of it has to do with the fact that they're not able to export as much as they were um, previously before all these tariffs went into place and the animosity has been building between the two nations. Yeah, um, and major and major levels of debt. I mean, we, I think there was a, a 60 Minutes article like six or seven years ago about uh, these ghost cities in China. And so what these developers were doing, would they would b- essentially build a city and then um, these third and fourth tier cities, these migrant workers, would the, the thought was that they would come in and occupy uh, all of these vacant buildings and essentially occupy and populate a city that was built for them. And, and so the, some of these ghost cities, cities still stand. They, they were built with high levels of debt. At the same time, you have a major demographic issue. We talked to Perth Toll about this uh, at the beginning of the year. Uh, but uh, one-child policy in China has really been uh, a major uh, economic uh, detractor for the Chinese, uh, chi- the Chinese continent, just by or the the country, just by virtue of of major population decline, and that's going to continue just uh, because there was uh, policies put in place uh, thirty years ago plus to limit the amount of children uh, a couple could have, and so. Uh, high levels of debt, uh, uh, population decline, and um, just j- just stagnant ec- economic growth is not a good recipe. And so we're seeing that play out in China now on top of post-COVID onshoring and setting up new supply chains, specifically Canada, Mexico, Southeast Asia, that are becoming uh, net uh, benefit or net benefit, uh, net beneficiaries of sort of the decoupling from China. Yeah, it's also crazy that they went after all of their like they had this this tech this burgeoning tech uh, culture or whatever inside of China, and they went after like Alibaba and Jack Ma, and now the whole Chinese stock market has just gotten completely hammered. And there was an, in that same article that I was referencing earlier, uh, the uh, leader of China Xi was telling young people who've grown accustomed to working in for these like big companies to get more. Uh, to 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 feel more comfortable getting their hands dirty and things like so. Anyway, it sounds like things are not going very well over there right now. Um, and yeah, so they made a lot of the policy York, mistakes. I mean, this is from the New York Times from two days ago. It says China suspends report on youth unemployment, which was at record high, ages sixteen to twenty four. Right? Yeah, they're not reporting yeah. on it anymore. Yeah, let's sleep. Twenty one percent. Twenty one percent of workers uh i mean 16 is pretty young but 16 to 24 uh are unemployed in china so you have a um it's not a good situation for especially sort of a top-down regime um you know communist regime to have youth that are unemployed and that's seemingly the case too that's also not good for economic growth yeah so i want to talk about two um while we're on the topic of uh international i'll talk about two different two countries and then we can shift gears after that but number one i saw this is from the financial times uh this highlights the level of wealth concentration in uh, britain and london but it says without the london capital the uk on the whole would be poorer per per capita than um, the poorest u.s state which is mississippi 
I find that to be really interesting. And then on the other side of the equation, you've got a really rich country in Saudi Arabia, or one that's at least trying to sort of like bring in the 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 uh, the sports culture. And that's this is a particular uh, piece as it relates to they just signed uh, Neymar Jr., who's the best Brazilian soccer player, to play for one of their teams. It lists off that he's going to be making a hundred million dollars a year, hundred million, pardon me, hundred million euro a year, which is like one hundred ten million dollars. Which is not, I guess, if you compare it to some of the the, the other salaries out there, it's not too crazy. But it, as it, I've, I thought the uh, the sort of uh, package items that he's getting along with his salary are pretty hilarious. He's getting a house with twenty five bedrooms, a forty by uh, ten meter swimming pool, and three saunas. Five full time staff for his house, a Bentley Continental GT, an Aston Martin, a Lamborghini, a twenty four hour driver. All of his bills for hotels, restaurants, and various services will be paid for a private plan at his disposal and then $500,000 for each social media post that promotes Saudi Arabia. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, they're, they're swimming in cash. I think it's also, it's the same issues that PGA and live were having where Saudis trying to through sports buy their way into sort of a, a, a better PR spin versus the human rights issues that they were having. <laughs> I can. Um, I'm, predi- I'm going to predict uh, with that. There's going to be a lot of uh, so- social media posts promoting Saudi Arabia if there's not any sort of yeah. limits on. Yeah, half a million dollars <laughs> per. Right. right, exactly. So yeah, there's uh, there's. I just thought this is very sort of like, like very just sort of goofy news, but that's. I thought that was hilarious and what they're doing to try to attract talent to that area. Um, yeah, it's it's actually not not that different than what China was doing this, at least several years ago with NBA players and uh, like Disney, for example. South Park made a um, a uh, episode about uh, Disney with uh, with China and like Mickey Mouse was a villain or something like that. So it's a uh, it's really similar to what China was trying to do through sports and media influence perception upon the country and saudi's following that playbook yeah we, we just are so dominant and i guess in this particular case europe is dominant and it's just so hard to build that organically from a media standpoint and a sports standpoint and so if you've got the capital you just have to try to appropriate it um speaking of the the relative wealth of um of britain versus the versus the this individual that's going neymar is going to play for saudi arabia the wall street journal has been doing a series on retirees and if you're interested, I highly encourage you to read it. But it goes goes on to talk about how different retirees with different levels of net worth live. Um, and the most recent one was retirees that um, have over $5 million of liquid assets and what they do on a regular basis. And they talk about their lifestyle, et cetera, and their spending needs. But this this the really sort of uh, shocking data, frankly, about what the, the average uh, American has saved for retirement. This is from the Wall Street Journal, whose source data is from the uh, EBRI estimates of 2019 survey of consumer finances. Roughly uh, 50% of Americans have nothing to save for retirement. 9% have between one and and 10,000. 13% have 10,000, 50,000. But bottom line is like only like, 8%, 7% 8%, 7% of Americans have over a half a million dollars saved for retirement. We operate in a world in which we serve a lot of people with significant amount of wealth. But if you think about it on a percentage scale, we're talking about people that are a very, very, very small percentage of the United States. 
and one-tenth of 1% one of U.S. citizens have $5 million or more saved for retirement. Yeah, and this series that the Wall Street Journal was was doing was um, it was it's they they were seemingly ordinary American couples that had retired. I mean, there's a guy that was a pilot, for example, uh, flew for I think it was like Southwest Airlines or something like that. Um, and so, yeah, it's just it goes to show you how rare it is to accumulate five million dollars or more for retirement um, by by this study, but at the same time. These were these were disciplined individuals. We we started this podcast talking about Michael Burry and those predictions. And uh, if you look at you know they, they ask these people how they're invested, and they're basically saying, "Look, I, I don't really pay attention to the day to day of the market. I've just bought some high quality companies, bought some passive index to, uh, positions, maybe a mutual fund here or there, but essentially been invested in the market for, throughout the career. And the reason that they've accumulated five million dollars is." diligent saving and staying invested and not doing the Michael Burry flip-flop. Right. And it also goes to show you that of the people that we do deal with are incredibly disciplined in, in order to be able to accumulate that. Because just if you look at it on a relative scale, it's just the, the data is sort of astounding that like, like I just mentioned, 7% of Americans have more than $500,000 saved for retirement. And you know, it's the percentages go down from there. So just a sort of dramatic, shocking data. Um, but if you, if you, if you can get to that point, you're in a sort of rarefied company. Yeah. So, um, I, the, the other thing that's, that has been in the headlines a bunch lately, we've talked about it here on the podcast is just mortgage rates and home prices and what's happening to the real estate market. Um, I think that this is, I'm going to hedge this at the end, but I think this, this was a really interesting stat that was, uh, uh, posted this week. So there was an article in the Washington Post that was talking about how, um, you know, that houses are unaffordable, which, which essentially they are. Uh, but the other side of that story is that this, this is home ownership rates for households under the age of 35. This is by Dean Baker. He says, contrary to what the Washington Post tells you, the home ownership rate for young people is actually comparable to what has been throughout the past four decades. Uh, actually, home ownership for people under the age of 35 got it it uh, hit its trough in around uh, 2008 or so, 2009 at about 14, 15, 15. Sorry, I can't read this. 34, 35 percent home ownership rate. It's now at about uh, 38, 39 percent for people under the age of 35 that own a house. Uh, that's about average. It peaked in early 2000s around 43%. But still, uh, there's a significant portion of so-called millennial and Gen Z population that, that own homes, about a third, a little more than a third own homes. Uh, and a lot of those homes, I would imagine, were purchased when rates were low. The issue is if rates stay high for much longer, we're going to have a, a big lag period where where there's going to be a lot of individuals that are not able uh, to to afford a house. So the question here is how long are mortgage rates going to stay at current levels? Uh, if they stay at current levels for a long period of time, it's going to be troubling. This is um, this is from uh, uh, News Lambert on Twitter. It says, if U.S. income spiked 69%, we'd return to pre-pandemic housing affordability levels. If U.S. home prices fell 41%, we'd return to pre-pandemic affordability. If mortgage rates fell 4.3% from 72 to 
to 3%. Uh, we'd we'd return to pre-pandemic affordability. So something's got to give here in the next couple of years. Number one, wages have to increase, which wages have been increasing. But they're not going to be uh, able to go 69%. Yeah. Uh, right. Prices have to come down, which they haven't really come down much yet because inventory has been shot. Or mortgage rates, which I think that's uh, the more likely thing to happen over the next couple of years, that rates come off this 7 They're not going to go, I don't think, back to, to 3% anytime soon. But if they're in that 4 four to five percent range i think that that would be palatable for markets yeah right now i think mortgage rates are in the high sevens or something like that the 10-year treasury is at a like 15 year high it's like a 4.3 percent and it hasn't been like that since 2017 so pre 2007 to pardon me thank you 2007 so it's been a really um sort of uh, crazy bond market and mortgage market, and you're absolutely right. It's going to affect the per- the affordability of housing. While you were talking, I, w- I wanted to point out two things. Number one, what you're saying is that what is actually happening and, and the data is bearing out is that people under the age of 35 are owning homes just about what they have historically. Um, even then, that really doesn't match the narrative that you see in, in the media. Secondarily, from an affordability standpoint, if you look at the there's specific areas of the country, like thinking more really specifically about New Orleans and the Gulf Coast. That doesn't take into account the, the lack of affordability related to homeowners insurance. I think this is going to become a really, it's already a big issue, but it's, I think it's going to become an even bigger issue as time goes on. I know my homeowners insurance now is is almost 1% of the value of my house. And if that, at some point, that the when you're talking about ins- insurance plus the high interest rates associated with loans, it really, really becomes unaffordable, especially when you're looking at certain geographic areas of the country that insurers are no really no not r- willing to write policies unless you're going to pay them an arm and a leg. Yeah, I mean, just look at the the New Orleans market just from a an inventory perspective. I mean, everything is just sitting here, and this is. I don't, I'm not sure what's going on in the rest of the market. We can pull some Redfin data for next week, but uh, just anecdotally, in coastal areas where they're hurricane-prone, um, the insurance component is having a major, major impact on on buy decisions, not just mortgage rates. And it's uh, you know, a lot of people can't afford to even stay in their current homes um, because of that, and so it's uh, it's becoming a, a major detriment to either home prices or just people wanting to locate here uh it's right it's an issue totally and then if you uh, if you think about new orleans on top of that you've got to deal with the the lack of public schooling and you got to pay for you know just the 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 vast majority of people our friends and family etc send their kids to private school and that costs a fortune so new orleans is really if you look at it just from a you know a just pure uh like housing situation is is like significantly less expensive than you know where we you know these uh, bigger cities around the country, but there's a lot of it uh, costs that you don't see that really make it cost prohibitive to live here, and that's going to be something the city really needs to address if it's going to uh, continue to I don't know not, not continue to grow because it's not doing that, but it's going to turn the stop page. the bleed exactly. All right, well we're coming up uh, 23, 24 minutes here, so uh, we'll wrap it up this week. But thank you so much for joining. Uh, hope you liked it. Give us a five star review. Share with your friends, and we'll be back next week. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. 
You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.